And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is a great nation involved in a great struggle right now against the axis of resistance, uh, so-called. That is the group of uh, militias and terrorist groups associated with the Islamic Republic, Republic so-called, of Iran. Uh, We'll be talking with Ralph Peters, longtime Army intelligence officer, and uh, an expert on foreign policy who writes as clearly and forcefully as anyone I know on issues of national security. Uh, He has uh, several new pieces that deserve attention, one called The Russian Way of War. The other, uh, just posted on the Hoover Institution website, is Reinventing Punitive Expeditions. Uh, What do you do? to try to keep the Red Sea and adjacent waters safe for international commerce while struggling to contain an epidemic of Iran-backed violence. Uh, We'll be speaking about that with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Peters, retired, uh, coming up on the Michael Medved Show. But first up, uh, there are two big issues that at least have some tangential connection with one another. Uh, the issue of the impeachment uh, of Alejandro uh, the uh, Alejandro uh, I'm even blocking his name uh, Mayorkas <laughs> thank you uh, Alejandro Mayorkas the uh, very controversial Secretary of Homeland Security uh, he is facing uh, articles of impeachment which probably won't win a majority in the House of Representatives because the Republican majority is so thin, and I don't know of any Democrats yet who have voted to favor the impeachment of Mayorkas. The Wall Street Journal had an editorial about this, which we talked about on the air a couple of days ago, uh, which basically said the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas accomplishes nothing, nothing at all. And meanwhile, we also have uh, another indication of a Congress that can't win a majority on anything concerning what had been negotiated between Republicans and Democrats as a compromise on border security. Uh, The Wall Street Journal and many other conservative sources, Wall Street Journal has an editorial that says a border security bill worth passing. And yet uh, the um, Speaker of the House today did a press conference, Speaker Mike Johnson, and he has decided to turn against this bill, which basically was granting a yes on a whole range of border security actions that Republicans in the past had favored. Uh, including new emergency border restrictions, major changes to asylum to make it more difficult to reach asylum, a growing use of alternatives to detention to keep people out of the country and, if necessary, to deport them. And uh, there's a great deal in this bill to make immigration tougher. But uh, this is what Speaker Johnson had to say about it in his press conference earlier today. This is clip 19. 
If you don't have a secure border, you don't have safety, you don't have security, and you don't have sovereignty. And the Republicans simply cannot vote for the bill in good conscience. And that is why I declared it dead on arrival, and it looks like right now it may be in some jeopardy. It may be on life support in the Senate. Um, we welcome that development because this is a matter that must be addressed in a manner that, address, that, that actually solves the problem. Uh, we, we, we have been urging from day one, literally the day that I took the gavel in late October, been urging the Senate, urging the White House to consider the provisions of H.R. 2. Why? Because our Secure the Border Act has the necessary components to solve the problem. We restore Remain in Mexico, we end catch and release, we reform the asylum, uh, broken system, the, the broken parole process and policy this administration has been pursuing, and we built wall. Those things are necessary to solve the problem, and everybody knows it. It's not Republican talking points. It's the objective fact. Okay. Uh, one of the Republicans who objected to that objective fact is Ken Buck, uh, who, together with Tom McClintock of California, Ken Buck is leaving the House of Representatives at the end of his term this term, but he is from Colorado. He spoke to Anderson Cooper of CNN uh, about the proclamation by Speaker Johnson that the border bill was dead on arrival. This is clip 13. And, and I think it's, uh, frankly, uh, Anderson, irresponsible to say that something is dead on arrival when we haven't even seen the final product from the Senate. We have to have a starting place, and this bill may be the starting place, to try to deal with the border crisis. Um, I, I, I want to look at the bill more carefully. I want to try to uh, improve the bill to the point where we can pass it in the Senate and in the House. Do you think, I mean, are you saying your House colleagues have been irresponsible by saying it's dead in the Senate, dead on arrival? I think it's irresponsible to say something is dead on arrival that you don't even know what's in it because it hasn't passed the Senate. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, this was uh, Chuck Schumer, the uh, uh, majority leader of the U.S. Senate, uh, also responding to Speaker Johnson. Uh, this uh, was on Morning Joe uh, with Mika Brzezinski, clip six. Yeah, I say to Speaker Johnson, don't let the 30 hard right uh, people in the House who are extreme. They wanted us to default. They wanted the government not to pay its debts. They wanted us um, to the government to shut down. They're extremists. And they're running your show. Do the right thing. You know what the right thing to do is. You know we need to fix our border. You know that it has to be bipartisan. The bill that you passed didn't get a single Democratic vote in the House or the Senate. How are you going to get anything done? Or do you just want to make a speech as you admittedly say the border is, you say the border's in chaos, do something about it. Don't just politically posture. And uh, here is President Biden who spoke on this uh, bipartisan national security uh, supplemental bill about why it was necessary, clip uh, 21A. For much too long, as you all know, the immigration system has been broken. And it's long past time to fix it. That's why months ago I instructed my team to begin negotiations with a bipartisan group of senators to seriously and finally fix our immigration system. For months now, that's what they've done. Working around the clock, through the holidays, over the weekends, it's been an extraordinary effort by Senators Lankford, Murphy, and Sinema. The result of all this hard work is a bipartisan agreement that represents the most fair, humane reforms in our immigration system in a long time and the toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. And uh, 
then uh, what happens to this bill? Uh, it is unclear. It may or may not be tied to the uh, impeachment articles against Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, but uh, the the idea that uh, there is a tough immigration bill that does in it so many reforms that Republicans have pushed for for years but have never gotten Democrats to agree to, and now the Democrats do agree. And because, and a number of people said this, Steve Daines, the uh, senator from North Dakota, has said that the reason that Republicans can't support this is because it's such an important election issue to use. In other words, if this is a crisis, and I believe it's accurate to say that it is, I mean, when the U.S. National Guard, uh, Federal National Guard, and the Texas uh, uh, Texas National Guard and the Federal Border Patrol are close to having conflict with one another. Yes, it's a crisis. So the idea that we're going to put this off in order to play politics, I'm not sure that works. You can't also play politics with the situation worldwide. We're going to be speaking uh, with Ralph Peters and uh, about what exactly Biden is doing right or wrong uh, in dealing with Iran, and uh, what about the Russian way of war and how to counteract it? We'll get to that with Ralph Peters coming up on The Medved Show. Michael Medved Show, always honored to have back to the show Ralph Peters. Ralph is a prize-winning, best-selling novelist and the author of many innovative works on strategy and security. He's a retired U.S. Army officer and a former enlisted soldier, and his unusual career took him from Moscow to Mandalay and from the Middle East to Latin America. Uh, He has a new piece uh, just posted at the Hoover Institution website uh, about reinventing punitive expeditions, which has to do with uh, how the United States is responding to the challenges to international commerce and to international security by the Houthi rebels in Yemen who are affiliated with Iran and the bigger problem of containing Iran itself and uh, their ally, Russia. Uh, Ralph, uh, pleased to speak with you. Do you believe that the U.S. strikes uh, against the Houthis and uh, against the Iranian militias and affiliated terrorists have been effective and that they will help to lead to a resolution of uh, the dangers in the Middle East? Well, Michael, whether they're effective or not depends on what your expectations are. Um, If you really wanted to make a a significant change, if you really want to get an enemy's attention, you got to kill people. And there are some people that just need killing. We have trouble accepting that. So my biggest concern about the strikes thus far, and we don't know all the details, and our assumptions could be wrong, but it appears 
uh, to this former soldier, that our targeteers um, really were very concerned with not killing too many of our, of our enemies. They don't want to kill too many Iranians or any Iranians, et cetera, et cetera. So we hit places at night. We hit places, you know, ammunition dumps, um, headquarters, intelligence outposts. Uh, they all matter. Um, but ammunition can be replaced. Uh, an outpost can be reestablished. Uh, you can dust yourself off. Um, the one thing that is absolutely decisive is killing your enemy until they're not there anymore. And, you know, I'm not a fan of, of ex-President Trump, but he did one really good thing, a gutsy thing uh, for whatever reason. Uh, he killed, he authorized the killing of General Soleimani, the head of the Iranian Republican Guards. That got their attention. And, um, Michael, there are so many complex issues here, but I try to boil it down to our sometimes our fickle, lunatic uh, morality where, and nobody's able to explain this to me, Michael. Uh, for almost a half century, I've been asking people, why is it moral, why is it perfectly acceptable to kill a private who may not even want to be there, but it's not acceptable to kill the national leader or the general who sent him there? Now, why is that? I mean, of course, you know, 20 privates got killed, no big deal. One, you know, when Soleimani got killed, it wasn't Iranians, just Iranians complaining. It was Westerners saying, oh, how could you do that? That's bad. It's going to be more trouble. You, we don't assassinate people. Well, war, war, war and conflict short of war, such as what we're seeing with the Houthis in the Red Sea right now, it's, it's not about little tit-for-tats. It's not about making the enemy run out of a machine gun ammunition for 48 hours. If you want to play in the big leagues, You've got to be willing to kill people. I'm not just a warmonger. I'm telling you the facts of history. If you, if you well, go to they, war and don't they, want to hurt your answer, enemy, you're going to lose. Wouldn't that answer to your question, which is a great question, of course, about why it's considered moral and appropriate to kill a private who's conscripted into the army, whereas the person who is the leader of the state, the Vladimir Putin or the, the Grand Ayatollah, is because they'll hit back at you in the same way. In other words, the uh, uh, President Biden doesn't want to make a decision that's going to lead to somebody taking out uh, Anthony Blinken. Uh, he doesn't want to make a lead that's going to lead to someone taking out Lloyd Austin uh, or him. And uh, in, in, in other words, isn't that a, a legitimate fear that... Uh, uh, that if you do take out a prominent leader, uh, uh, for instance, taking out Vladimir Putin, what would well, be the reaction to that? Well, I mean, it's an extreme case, but the reaction, uh, it might, there might be quite a lot of happy Russian oligarchs. But, you know, <laughs> Michael, the idea that we should be controlled by fear is a prescription for losing. Don't, 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 Take counsel. Don't be afraid of things that haven't happened, probably will not happen. Don't worst case every last thing. Sometimes you've got to put fear into your enemies. You know, we're afraid, of, well, they might assassinate a cabinet member or a general or blah, blah, blah. Hey, guys, you want to play in the big leagues, you've got to bring a big bat. And, you know, it's kind of the reverse question. Well, wait a minute. We're willing to risk our privates or our sergeants or our captains, or our lieutenants, but we're not willing to risk Anthony Blinken. 
I mean, it's the, 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 there's. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I always tell people about the Middle East, or and now about the whole world. Never assign blame to a conspiracy theory for anything that can be explained by incompetence. And that's certainly what I, what I, what I all too often see. I, I see national, our national leaders. You saw way back in 2004 in Fallujah, uh, and many a time since then. Our forces are on the verge of winning a battle or winning a campaign, and the press starts bemoaning the enemy's casualties, and, oh, it's a bloodbath. Oh, civilians are dying. Hey, dude, this is war, and we didn't start it. And the same thing goes to the, for the Israelis right now. I'm sorry for the massive loss of life in Gaza, but yeah, the, the events when, the, when uh, Hamas attacked that pop concert, the electronic music concert, when they came across the border intending to rape and slaughter, now that's why the, there's fighting in Gaza today. It's not because the Israelis did something bad. The Israelis, oh God, they were at a music festival. And Hamas comes back and slaughters them. And now we have people sticking up for Hamas. And just by the way, I believe in immigration. I believe that anybody from anywhere in the world can become a good American if they play the game, if they learn English, if they obey the laws, if they contribute. But I also think that it's fair criticism to say to any, any ethnic group, any recent arrivals, that, that are out protesting, oh, this shouldn't be happening overseas, the U.S. shouldn't do that. Hey, dude, leave that stuff at home. If you want to come to the United States of America, leave the old hatreds at home. We're not going to fight your battles for you. We're not going to refight history. We're not going to refight the last 5,000 years for you. And my sympathies, even though I don't agree with everything Israel does, my sympathy is with Israel because ultimately Israel wants peace and survival, and Hamas wants to kill every Jew. Uh, talking to Ralph Peters, uh, we'll talk about reinventing punitive expeditions and the Russian way of war, how to confront it, and more uh, with Ralph Peters. Michael Medved show there was one uh, detail it's more than a detail it's a very important number actually talking with Ralph Peters uh, Ralph Peters best-selling novelist of uh, really incomparable Civil War novels uh, that are very specific taking you through the entire course of the conflict and uh, and and then an army intelligence officer and a foreign policy expert uh, we were talking before about Hamas and taking Hamas out of the picture. The Israel Defense Forces uh, uh, released yesterday the estimate that they so far have either killed or taken prisoner uh, 20,000 uh, of Hamas fighters, of uh, 30,000 estimated fighters they had total, which, by the way, also explains those numbers you hear all the time from the Hamas health officials saying that there are 26 or 27,000 Palestinians who have been killed. They specifically don't 
make a distinction between civilians and combatants so that if both those numbers are accurate, let's say for the sake of argument, then uh, the majority of the people in uh, Gaza who have been killed in the Israeli assault have been Hamas combatants and fighters and terrorists. Uh, speaking of terrorists and uh, uh, the terror of the moment in which we live, the situation in Ukraine, the need for U.S. ammunition and more support from uh, the West is is so acute. Are you surprised at all, Ralph Peters, to see uh, our government paralyzed and un unable to give the support that uh, we need to give? Michael, I, I'm shocked. I, I really don't think any political event, uh, at least not since Kennedy's assassination in this country, has shocked me the way Republicans are, are, are openly supporting Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, supporting Putin's policies. And uh, the Ukrainians are fighting to be Europeans. They're fighting to be Westerners. They're fighting for freedom. They're fighting for the rule of law. And we don't care. Now, now some, certainly some Republicans do care, uh, especially in the Senate. But you have this group of pro-Putin, and that they are that, pro-Putin, no exaggeration, J.D. Vance, pro-Putin. They're supporting a dictator, a bloodthirsty tyrant, who invaded a neighbor just trying to get better after the Soviet terror from a better part of a century. And, I'm, Michael, I'm really at a loss for words. But how can we not? I mean, the Ukrainians are fighting our fight. Putin is our, he's declared himself our enemy. He has declared himself. We haven't, we wanted, I was there. We wanted to get along with the Russians. We wanted a, a new era of peace and understanding, blah, blah, in the 1990s. Instead, we got Putin. Now, again, it's not just a question of morality and supporting people who are fighting our fight against totalitarianism, against Putin, the Ukrainians, uh, but it's also very practical. If the Ukrainians are willing to fight Putin, who's our sworn enemy, and we don't have to send a single American young man or woman in uniform into the fight, that's a pretty good deal. And I know some Republicans are trying to sell the idea, well, it's too expensive to help Ukrainians. Oh, yeah, well, wait till Putin takes Ukraine and then moves on the rest of NATO uh, or the Baltic republics, for instance, and then you have a real war. I mean, this, is, this adoration of Putin is inexplicable. But then we have in this Republicans all party also the fellow travelers who are just, you know, Trump doesn't like Ukrainians, so Ukrainians are bad. And then you'll have the ludicrous charge, oh, Ukraine's corrupt. Oh, well, you know, they're, they're fighting against corruption. They're trying to stamp it out after the Soviets utterly corrupted their society. You, know, you, you don't like corruption? Well, then how can you support Putin, the most corrupt regime uh, on the Eurasian landmass? And and a regime a regime that, as you put it, is uh, following the traditional, uh, going back three centuries or more, Russian way of war. Yes. How do we counteract the Russian way of war? You counteract by helping Ukraine, by helping anyone who is attacked by Russia, because in this Ukrainian conflict, it's getting very dangerous, because Russia usually 
almost all of their major wars, or almost all their wars, they get off to a bad start. They perform poorly. There's been such corruption. Uniforms are missing. Tank parts are missing. But over the course, as wars become longer, the Russians do learn their lessons, and they get better. I mean, the Russian army, when Putin invaded, uh, I'm sorry, when Hitler, the same difference, but when Hitler invaded uh, in 1941, the, the, the Soviet army, the Red Army, was an absolute mess for a variety of reasons. Um, I actually held in my hand the overlay on which Molotov and Ribbentrop uh, divided pro- uh, Poland. And it was in a Russian archive back when we were still open to, help, to working with each other. Yes, I, that, I was the, that was the non-aggression pact between right. uh, Russia and Germany. Yeah, and the, and the border they drew was it's a crude border, just not accurate, or an overlay. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, the, the, the op orders uh, that I saw from 1941, even 42, for the Red Army were crude. You'd flunk out of command general staff college in the United States. By mid-war, they were pretty professional. By the end of the war, after four years of war, the Russian op orders were models that we could learn from. They were absolutely scrupulously brilliantly done. And the point here is simply that as this war drags on, every day it drags on is to Russia's advantage. Russia has almost four times the population, a much bigger economy. They've got the military industrial plants. Uh, Ukraine has some, but not enough. And, you know, by the way, we owe Ukraine. Because we're the ones that pressured Ukraine to give up their nuclear weapons back in the early 90s when the Soviet Union came apart. And the Ukrainians gave, gave them up because we promised and the Europeans promised uh, to, to essentially to protect them. And everybody forgets that. I mean, the Ukrainians have struggled to do everything right. They, they've pushed with the Orange Revolution and their other, their other re- efforts. They've pushed the Russian, they pushed the the Soviet legacy out. They pushed Putin's people out. They're fighting for democracy. They're fighting for what we stood for in 1775 and 1776. The Ukrainians, those the Ukrainians, those guys, they're not professional soldiers. Few of them are. They're the Minutemen at Lexington and Concord. And how these United States can turn our backs over chump, political chump change, a small, relatively a tiny part of our budget, how we can turn our backs on those brave patriots fighting our fight for us in the, in, for some minor political advantage, advantage here at home. You know, I have to say, for, this, for their fealty to Putin, for their support of Putin, the Republicans deserve the, the most landslide, the biggest landslide defeat in American political history. This is disgraceful. Ronald Reagan, the party of Ronald Reagan. Today is Reagan's birthday. Great American. And Today is Reagan's Putin. birthday, you know. Yes. Yeah, yes. and it's he, ironic he that... Well, it's, uh, it's ironic that this is the day that they're declaring this supplemental uh, that it enhances border security at the same time that it provides very much needed uh, ammunition for the Ukrainians and other crucial support for Taiwan and for Israel. And the idea that this is being blocked as a political stunt look it's it's problematic uh you can read um the uh most recent commentary by uh ralph peters reinventing punitive expeditions it's uh, linked at our website at michaelmedved.com the uh, house is set to vote 
on whether to impeach the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. House Speaker Mike Johnson said it will happen tonight, despite fears that holdouts and absences could set up a nail-biter vote. We'll give you the very latest on that and more coming up on The Medved Show. On the uh, Michael Medved show, uh, breaking news, according to The Hill, (coughs) Senate Republicans have been under heavy pressure from uh, former President Trump, and uh, they will block a procedural motion to begin debate on the bipartisan border security deal this week. That leaves the funding for the war in Ukraine in limbo for the foreseeable future. Instead of turning to the border bill, the House is uh, set to vote on whether to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. Given the fact that he, number one, if he is impeached, there is zero chance that there will be 68, uh, pardon me, 67 senators. That's what they need. To remove him from office, they need to get 67 senators to vote to remove him from office. There are only 49 Republican senators. Even if you get every single Republican to vote to remove Alejandro Mayorkas, he wins, which is one of the reasons that no other cabinet member in the whole history of the republic has ever been uh, voted uh, <clears throat> Impeached and removed from office, impeached and convicted. The uh, uh, meanwhile, um, the and uh, in Nevada, President Trump, uh, where they're holding today, uh, they have a Nevada primary in which I don't believe President Trump is on the ballot. Uh, Nikki Haley is, but uh, she is not on the ballot for the. Uh, caucuses that come up in Nevada next week, which are more important because they determine delegates. In any event, in Nevada today, Trump said uh, Americans should blame him. Oh, we have the audio? Well, by all means, let's hear it from uh, the former and wannabe future president. And I'll fight it all the way. I notice a lot of the senators, a lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me i said that's okay please blame it on me please uh and uh he wants them to blame him for sabotaging the deal on the border so that he can campaign on the issue in other words uh what he doesn't recognize of course is that if we are going to have the campaign fought out on this issue Uh, And the border is still in terrible shape because there's been no major change and there's been no major reform. Uh, President Trump wants to campaign on the idea that uh, he uh, was such a uh, uh, standout in, in stopping a bill that could have actually made the situation better. Wall Street Journal uh, has a uh, an editorial uh, a border security bill worth passing 
Do Republicans want to better secure the U.S. border? Do they want to keep what has become an open sore festering for another year as an election issue? That's the choice presented to Congress this week with the rollout of the Senate's bipartisan border security bill. And we'll soon learn what the GOP really wants. By any honest reckoning, this is the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades, writes the journal. Previous immigration talks have involved trading security measures for legalizing more immigrants. There is little of the latter in this bill, nothing for nearly all the dreamers who were brought here illegally as children, no general pathway to citizenship or green cards for most illegal immigrants entering in the U.S., This is almost entirely, writes the Wall Street Journal, a border security bill. And its provisions include longtime GOP priorities that the party's restrictionists could never have passed only a few months ago. Republicans demanded border measures last year as the price for passing military aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Pacific allies. Democrats resisted at first, but later agreed to negotiate and have made concessions that are infuriating the open borders left. Will Republicans now abandon what they claim to want? Most important, the bill rewrites the standard and uh, process for granting asylum in the U.S. Under current law and practice, migrants cross the border, turn themselves in to Border Patrol agents, and then claim asylum. If they pass the deliberately low bar for claiming credible fear of persecution, they are given a date for a future asylum hearing and released into the U.S. The wait can take years, and many never show up. This is the policy that has become known as catch and release. The new bill raises the bar for that initial border screening for credible fear uh, to a reasonable possibility of persecution. Toughening the asylum standard was a victory of the Trump administration, but a statutory change is needed to make it permanent. Migrants will have to show they couldn't have moved elsewhere in their own country to avoid persecution before seeking refuge in the U.S. The bill also includes an expedited review process for asylum with a stay or deport decision within 90 to 180 days, no more waiting for years. Uh, There's money for 50,000 detention beds while migrants are awaiting review. If there are more migrants arriving than can be detained, the overflow will be enrolled in mandatory alternatives to detention programs that use tools such as ankle bracelets or reporting curfews. No more catch and release without consequences. All of this is appropriate. And when it comes to the situation with immigration, uh, it's very, very difficult to hear Senator Langford, who is the chief Republican negotiator who helped to negotiate this uh, deal, uh, speaking uh, to uh, Jake Tapper about the border deal. Uh, This is clip 12 running for president and so he's trying to be able to manage that and obviously a chaotic border is helpful to him in the process on that 
if Donald Trump was president right now, let me be very clear, we would not have the chaotic border that we have right now. Joe Biden is not enforcing the border, even not just like Donald Trump, not like Barack Obama. Uh, we have six times more people crossing the border now than we had under Barack Obama. Uh, so this president's clearly not enforcing the border. But for Donald Trump, he's focused on the campaign. I'm, I'm the lead Republican on the Homeland Security Border Management Committee. And so my focus is the national security focus. I'm going to do whatever I can to be able to secure the nation as fast as I can, regardless of election cycles. This is something Americans are looking for and have asked for for a very long time. We have got to be able to secure the border. Yes, it's going to have to be a bipartisan. It's the United States Senate. It always has to be bipartisan. So let's work together to be able to figure out where we can find common ground and actually solve an issue. We'll solve as much as we can, then start working on the next level. Okay, I think that uh, uh, Senator Langford has done an outstanding job, and it's interesting. The other two personnel, uh, Senator Murphy from Connecticut and uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona, who still hasn't made a decision in her announcement, she not only can't decide whether she's Republican or Democrat, she's an independent in the U.S. Senate, but she can't decide whether she's running again, which would be <laughs> because that would be a three-way race in Arizona, which I think Senator Sinema has little chance of winning. But with all of this going on, the Wall Street Journal says if Republicans reject this bill, they will hand Democrats an argument that the GOP wants border chaos that they can exploit as a campaign issue. The chaos will continue for at least another year. Republicans may think they can write a better law if Mr. Trump wins in November, but don't count on it. Democrats will again demand much more in return. If Republicans pass up this rare chance at border reform, they may not get a better one. And uh, we're going to be speaking uh, uh, this coming hour uh, to honor President Reagan's birthday. Uh, yes, it is his birthday. And there's a, a very touching, very moving, a very profound uh, article done by John West of the Discovery Institute, who will be speaking to about Reagan as a person of faith, who not only cared about his personal walk of faith, but cared about spreading uh, the good news of a belief in a higher power that guides and shelters America, uh, spreading that to people to whom he was close. We'll also speak to J.D. Tusil, who asks a uh, an unanswerable question. If Americans are so unhappy with the politicians that we have, why are we going to be voting virtually all of them back into office? Congress and the leading presidential candidates are wildly unpopular, but don't expect new faces, he says. Don't we deserve better in this greatest nation on God's green earth? 